1: Not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you?
2: When's the last time you had a conversation about race with someone from a different racial background than yourself? When's the last time you talked about race with someone whose perspective about race differs significantly from your own? Well, I'm going to make a few factual statements here. The first is uncontroversial. People who don't look like you will be in heaven. We all know that. I think most of us celebrate it. But here's a more difficult fact. People who disagree with you about race, people who disagree with me about race, will be in heaven. So at some point, you're going to have to work out those differences. And I think God's going to hold us accountable if we didn't start trying to do that today. If we didn't start today, when racial unity inside the church
1: could be a powerful force, a force to draw people across the racial spectrum to Jesus, because the church ought to be the one place in our world where people of every color
2: can learn to love one another, live alongside one another, disagree with one another, and grow together. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Isaac Adams. He's the pastor of Iron City Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and the founder of United We Pray. This is a really cool ministry. It's devoted to praying about racial strife. He's also the author of Zondervan's Talking About Race, which is honestly maybe the best book I have read on this topic. That's in part because Isaac uses a fictional story in the first half of the book to invite you into a conversation about race. It doesn't matter if you're resistant, if you're excited, if you're self-righteous, if you're confused, if you're ambivalent, wherever you're at, you'll find a reflection of yourself in this story. And I think you'll be encouraged because Isaac is gracious. This is a book that is so loving towards all different perspectives on this issue. And it's welcoming people into a gospel-centered perspective on race. So I don't want to say too much more. Let's hop into this conversation with Isaac.
0: Thanks so much for being on the show today, Isaac. Hey man, thank you for having me. Good to be on someone else's show. It's nice. <laughs> you should be on lots of shows. I
2: will tell our listeners this, Keith and I argued over who got to interview you because we both loved your book so much. That's God, man. Well, yes, God's working through you to do some amazing things. And I want to start off this time by maybe giving you a chance to share a little bit about yourself personally. Before we did the interview, you were sharing with me about how you've recently taken a job pastoring in Alabama. And he said, I never in a million years expected that I would be in Alabama. You said that had something to do with also your relationship with your mom who recently passed away. So would you just share about this? Why are you in Alabama? Why would that have been difficult for your mom?
0: Yeah, man. So I'm a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, in God's strange providence. The church actually asked me to come down a couple of years ago, and I said no. One, because I wanted to grow as a pastor, but I think that might have been the godly reason. But (laughs) maybe what was really going on inside was like, I was asking myself, why in the world would I ever willingly live in Alabama? Hmm. So I'm from D.C., born and raised there, Chocolate City. And I was like, yeah, why would I do that? I just had lots of, you know, images in my mind about Alabama. But as things progressed, I actually saw that the church would be a really good fit in a lot of different ways. So I remember I was talking to the church. And I went to my mom, and I said, hey, mom, found this church in Alabama. And my mom, for context, is super godly, super meek. But she had this visceral reaction. And she said, oh, Isaac. I said, I found a church. She said, that's great. And I said, yeah, uh, it's in Birmingham. And she said, oh, Isaac. I told the Lord I would never step foot in that city after what they did to those four little girls. So that right there I think is helpful, Patrick, on a couple levels because it shows that all the stuff we're talking about is not ancient history. For my mom, that was ever-present. And she, you know, has made a vow that she would not even enter the city. And what's striking about that is she actually never did because my mom died unexpectedly just a couple of months ago. And so she wanted to get down. And she texted me later because I had texted a kind of a mentor pastor of mine. As soon as she said that, I said, we're off to a great start (laughs) over here. And he said, you know... Off goes Jonah to Nineveh. Yeah,
2: so how did she respond
0: when you took the job and you moved down to Birmingham? Yeah, man. I think she saw and realized God's hand in it because with the ministry we do with United We Pray, and obviously the things I'm talking about in the book, we're like, there's kind of no better city to be in than Birmingham. The history here, this is kind of our Silicon Valley if we were tech, if we were, you know, it's like, this is where we would like to be to see these things really lived out. And if it can happen in Birmingham by God's grace, we know that's a lot of grace given this city's ugly history.
2: Yeah. And maybe help our listeners move into your mom's mind. You know, why is what happened with the church bombing and four little girls dying? Why is that something that was still very much so present for her in 2021?
0: Because she could have been one of those girls my mom was that age when that happened and so when she is seeing that not even the place where one would go to worship the lord is safe because of the evil and insidious nature of racism my mom's like why would i ever go down there So I think it's good and right to recognize progress, right? I think we rob God of glory when we don't recognize progress. And mom, recognize progress. But when you see like, oh, the only criteria for getting murdered was to be black and to be a little girl. And she was a black little girl. You don't shake that by any means. And to see your own son who then is in your eyes still very much a black boy going off into the belly of the beast in that sense. Yeah, she had a lot of trepidation. I can understand why. And I think this is hard. I
2: mean, for me as a white person who just has not had to live in that kind of racial environment where I had to fear for my life or my existence because of the color of my skin, you know, the only shootings that I've seen that affected me had nothing to do with race, you know? I think as a result of that, it's a little bit hard to comprehend why that would so deeply affect someone else who experienced something similar, like, yeah, in this case, a bombing, but it was racially related, and how that continues to live with you in history. Because I think for a lot of white people, that stuff just doesn't live with us in history, you know? I was a young kid when Columbine happened, and I wasn't afraid to go into high schools because, well, you know, well, now there's all these shootings happening inside of high schools. And so I think that's a paradigm for people to realize how different it is when those things are racially motivated. Yeah, I
0: think that's right. And it was sobering for me, honestly. I hope not in a kind of martyrdom way of like, okay, let's go to Birmingham now, but in a way that says there's still gospel reconciling work to be done there and may the Lord let it be. And I like what you said a moment ago. You said, look, we need to praise God
2: for progress, but often that is where people want to end the story is, hey, look at everything that's changed full stop and not acknowledge the pain that is very much so in living memory still, and the pain that is ongoing inside of the black community, that becomes something that we can't talk about. Well, look how much better we are now. And again, that was something I really appreciate about your book and your work is that you're willing to hold those two things together in tension. And it seems so often you either get one or the other, and that's where the conversation ends.
0: Yeah, and as Christians, I mean, we should be so used to holding two truths in tension. That's just kind of what we do. You know, already not yet. Suffering, yet rejoicing, right? I mean, it was just like you can go on through whatever Paul is or whatever it may be. There's so many tensions we hold in truth. God is one, yet three in person. It's just, okay, here we go. And so, yeah, a lot of progress, a lot of work to do. I love
2: that. And I love the comparison to the paradoxes that we see inside of the new Testament and the gospel that Christians kind of are people of the paradox
0: (laughs) where we're living between these tensions. That's right. That's right. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's just like, oh man, okay, here we go. This is just my life right
2: now. You're going to start riffing if we don't watch out here. Here's a question I have for you. When did you first realize that talking about race with someone who's not of your race can be one of the most challenging things to do in
0: America? Oh my goodness. Oh, fifth grade? It's interesting, right? John Stott talks about how long in his book, Between Two Worlds, his book about preaching back to the paradoxes, right? He talks about, you know, when people talk about asking, like, how long does it take you to write a sermon? He's always like, I don't know how to answer that question. I've been writing this sermon my entire life because I'm drawing different experiences from life. And in so many ways, that's what it felt like with this book. It was like some of these memories, just to let everyone in on a little secret some of these stories in here are real stories with different names. There's some, you see these young boys in this story, and a lot of those are my story or someone else's story. And I remember in fourth grade, I went to a diverse school, just kind of melting pot school. In fourth grade, we were all cool. Fifth grade, it was an election year, and we were not cool anymore. Really? It was amazing the kind of how it co-varied race and politics. Anyway, fifth grade is the answer. Which election was that? That was Gore and Bush. Okay,
2: fascinating. I was thinking about this for myself and I think for a lot of white people who were in mostly white communities, this happens much later than fifth grade much, much, much later. I had very close friends who were black, but this wasn't on my radar in the same way. You know, I was kind of living oblivious to it. And one of the things I was gonna bring up is that, hey, it seems like when I kind of became awakened to these dimensions, it felt less politicized than it does right now. Mm-hmm. And I thank God for it, because I was able to have conversations that I almost don't think could happen today. And so I was gonna say, right. it seems worse now, it's more political now, but what you just told me was no, actually go all the way back to Gore and Bush. <laughs> there was a presidential election and it caused racial division.
0: So what happened? I do wanna agree with you, brother, because it was hard then and it's even harder now. Okay. I mean, we know all the markers, right? From 16 on or even 2012 on, so the last 10 years, we're just in a different kind of discourse, yeah. if we can even call it discourse. There's a level of battle and hostility and suspicion that is heightened, right? I kind of talk about three major events that happened. Let's talk about Trayvon 2012, Michael Brown 14, George Floyd 2020. These are three kind of major earthquakes in terms of race and evangelicalism that shed shockwaves throughout evangelicalism. Anyway, I can go back to fifth grade if you want me to. Let's go to those three things in just a second. But I want to go back to fifth grade because, I mean, that's actually a pretty remarkable memory. I mean, you remember why. You're like, it's presidential election. That's what caused this division. Well, and it's so often what we see right now. And I think we're in kind of detente mode. You know, midterms are right around the corner, but <laughs> it's 2022 and we're kind of like, okay, let's catch our breath from COVID and Okay, maybe it's not so bad if I don't open Twitter, but man, man, that's what election seasons bring about. So yeah, it's Bush versus Gore. And I remember, like I said, fourth grade, we're all cool. But fifth grade, there's a sign posted to my fifth grade door. It was modular. I remember it so clearly. And it was, who are you voting for, Bush or Gore?
2: Okay, so this is a story in your
0: book. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Here it is, right? I'm just not that creative. So on the left-hand column is Gore, and on the right-hand column, it's Bush. And... As you can imagine, most of the black kids said who they were voting for, which I guess is their parents were voting for, you know, Argore and most of the white Bush. And I just remember feeling like, huh, I don't really know where to sign or like, why is this all over there? And then it just became kind of like, why are you hanging out with them and not us? You know, some of my black friends saying that. All of a sudden, there was consciousness there. There was kind of group selection there all of a sudden in a way that I remember being difficult, And it was an election year. That's really fascinating because it does seem to me like
2: Politics or the politicization of this conversation has made it increasingly difficult to talk about. It's good for me to realize, hey, nothing new. And I mean, of course, you can go back to the 1960s and you can find other points where race is just at the heart of a culture war that's happening. It feels like we're back there right now, where it's at the heart of a culture war, and so everything you say is political, and that makes it challenging. So maybe let's change those three earthquakes. I totally agree, by the way, with those. You know, so you said Trayvon Martin in 2012, Michael Brown and Ferguson in 2014, and that's. By the way, right around the corner from where Keith, my co-host, and I live. I mean, we're two hours away from that. In fact, I was just in Ferguson this last Sunday preaching at a multi-ethnic church, 50% white, 50% black, So it's a church plant, super cool stuff that they're doing out there. And that's encouraging. But then obviously in 2020, we have the more recent events. And so maybe walk through those three earthquakes and share how you think that's shaping the conversation today.
0: Yeah. I mean, the tragedy is those are, like I said, the three kind of major earthquakes. But littered throughout all of those, we can pick any kind of handful of just racial tragedies. Language I try to use in the book of wherever you land, this is a tragedy. This is a lamentable thing this image bearer being slain and it echoes these really painful tensions from the past you mentioned the 60s and we can go well well oh, before yeah. that right so you can pick your philando Castiles, your eric gardeners you know you can just you can go down the line but it's from my perspective right so trayvon it happens and it's like oh man like i think that's just kind of an initial shock wave if we want to talk about whatever it might be young restless reform kind of neo-evangelical movement, whatever it is, like, oh, now we're realizing, like, we might have been agreed on some of these theological tenets, but on some of the implications of those, the applications of those to our living or to our politics actually not as agreed on and those things start getting revealed they're always there but they start getting revealed michael brown comes and i feel like that's when it was full force like we have fundamental disagreements about how we see these things i think that's really important to acknowledge is like it's not just as simple as I see it right, you see it wrong, but the, even the starting points are different. And we can have some different perspectives on this and still be faithful Christians, I think. And that's just not a message the world likes. It's agree with me or you're out. And so often that seeps into the church. And then George Floyd, which is really just, I mean, the most egregious of the examples. I don't want to rate them, but you know what I mean. And so Floyd comes, and I think even for, for so many people are like, okay, there's a problem here. Enough is enough, right? And so I heard this stated well by an African-American. He said, you know, for so many white people, they're waiting on the conversation to end. Haven't we already talked about this? How much longer do we need to talk about this? And what George Floyd does is reveal so many African-Americans are waiting for the real conversation to get started. And so here we are two years later in the wake of that having this conversation. And this book, you know, talking about race, is really inspired by some sense by Ahmaud Arbery. Tell me more about that. So it's ironic to me that the Lord would have me write about race because it's just something that has been so difficult throughout my life since fifth grade. Just so many different pain points, memories, whatever it might be. But I'd seen the kind of way Christians were tearing one another apart, really around Michael Brown. For me, that's when I was like this is crazy. And I was tempted to do that. So I wanted to write a book about race for a long time. I originally set out to write a book that would help people combat racism, right? I was like, I think there's a swath of Christians out there. They're like, we see it, we want to get after it. And I was like, praise God. But then Ahmaud Arbery was gunned down and now I can say murdered. Sterling K. Brown, the dude from This Is Us, for all the This Is Us fans out there who you know just watched that show. And he goes live on Facebook. This is like right at the COVID outbreak. And he went for a run. If you're familiar with Aubrey's case, you know why it's relevant that he goes for a run. He holds up his COVID mask and he says, you know, as a black man, long before COVID, I feel like I have to wear this mask in predominantly white contexts. And why that grieved me so much was because that's the same thing Paul Lawrence Dunbar, a black poet, said in 1896 in his poem, We Wear the Mask, which is really just a beautiful and tortured prayer from a Black person saying, Lord, we're wearing this mask. And so it dawned on me, at least, that all of us in this conversation feel like we have to wear masks on some level, metaphorically speaking, has nothing to do with COVID, where we feel like we can't really be honest about what we think. We can't really just drop the mask and say what we think because we fear whatever it might be being a racist being on the wrong side being whatever it is and so i think you know we don't all wear our masks with equally good reasons or equal amount of difficulty we fear being a race baiter or we fear being a racist whatever it is and so what that does though is it's so suspicion and lack of trust in the body of christ and that hampers and hinders love. And Satan has a vested interest in love being hindered in the church, because if love runs in the church, then John 13, 35 might very well be true. The world will know we are Jesus's disciples. So he has a vested interest. I often say, if you care about evangelism, you need to care about racism. The Lord says, John 13, 35, this is how the world will know you're my disciples. John 17, this is how the world will know the father sent the son, your unity. So Satan has a vested interest in our disunity. And so I thought it appropriate then to write a book about how we might drop our masks and be honest with each other because without that, we're not getting anywhere. I think it's one of the things I
2: appreciated so deeply about it is that I feel that mask. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Everybody's wearing a mask in different ways for different reasons with different level of difficulties, but the mask is there. And mm-hmm. this can be an absolutely terrifying conversation to have, especially if you've never had it before. One of the greatest gifts God gave to me was that when I was in seminary, our Dean of Students was a black man and his job was literally to care for students. He didn't have any choice, I guess, to care for me because I was a student there. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it was all fake, but I got to know him pretty well and he became a mentor and in far, 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 far more than just race issues. This was in St. Louis. Ferguson had happened. He was more than that, but he wasn't less. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was way, way, way more than that, but he certainly wasn't less. And thank God for that man because he let me take my mask down. And mm-hmm. honestly, some of the things I probably said and asked in those conversations had to be, painful for him as, a, as an older mm-hmm. black man and he showed me forgiveness and kindness and mercy and it was a radically transformative experience that I wish other people could have. And so one thing I loved about your book is because in some ways I felt like you were inviting everyone to have that relationship without having built it yet. Exactly. I was like that's what people need. They need to understand that people are coming to this with their stories. One of the things you say is that there's a lot of people in the white community who just want this conversation to end and I want you to explore why. I mean I'm literally thinking about a friend who I talked to the other day. This what he said he said the racial problem would go away if we just stopped focusing on it so much i try not even to see race so that helps me a ton and if you want to talk about race all the time you're the racist right and this is what a friend told me and we had a long conversation about it but i think he had his mask off with me and he was saying what a lot of people are thinking and feeling on the inside a lot of white people are saying hey
0: just time to end this let's move on what would you say to that well on one level i praise god that he had his mask off because if we aren't going to deal with the truth then we're just going to have a superficial conversation so praise god for that there's a couple ways we could get at this and i think it goes back to perspective like you said i think for a lot of white brothers and sisters whom i love they would say look at the progress a black man has been the president of this country twice multiple terms. Ketanji Jackson is on the Supreme Court. Look at this. And what I would say to that is praise God for that progress. There has been real progress. I recognize that. I'm thankful for that. I could not be married to my wife today and live in Birmingham, Alabama. My wife is white. Praise God for progress. And yet it goes back to the kind of dual tensions we were talking about. Well, you're looking at exceptions to what I would argue is the norm. And so let's not just look at Obama. Let's look at the neighborhoods where a lot of kids who look like Obama live. And let's just look at the state of them. Now, this is a complex thing. And this is one reason why this conversation is so hard to talk about. Because I'm sure that person would be quick to say something like, well, the issue is the family. Well, the issue is welfare. Well, the issue is blank, blank. And the issue, honestly, is probably not monocausal. But that doesn't mean race has nothing to do with it. And so I would just look at those kind of instances and see, okay, maybe to phrase it like this is why is it easier to vote for a black man to be president if you're white than it is to grab a beer with one, to know one deeply, to know a few. (laughs) I did not come up with that. That's Colby Tanner's kind of central question in his book. Some of my best friends are black. And he explores this reality of like, I live in this white world. You know, most of my friends are white. I mean, just look, I often find wedding pictures to be really revealing in this way. It's just like, look at your bridal party. Like, most of us, it's just pretty daggone segregated. There might be some exceptions. It's just pretty segregated. Why is that? So just start asking those why questions of like, why is it that typically the poor neighborhoods, and let's be clear, like, I recognize there are white poor neighborhoods in Appalachia. I recognize that. And yet, why is it that so many of these inner cities are black and poor? Is that simply because... Black people are lazy? I don't think so. And we can trace some of those rabbit trails that I think might bring about fruitful revelations. I think that's so helpful.
2: And I guess why I appreciate your voice is because there are a lot of voices on both sides that want to make this monocausal. Like think about Ibram Kendi and him saying any inequality that you see. Any disparity. Any disparity. goes down to race, right? And it's like, whoa, that's so over the top that it closes down the conversation because it's so patently obviously false, and yet on the other side, you have people who say, oh, race has nothing to do with it. We're a post-racial society, we're past it all. And I love what you, say. you said, just look at history and go backwards. I mean, like, one of my favorite things with the election thing, you, you brought up President Obama to say, hey, if you went back to the South during the Reconstruction era, And you looked at the amount of state senators and state representatives that were black in the Reconstruction era. Tremendous numbers. In fact, some of these states in the South had more black senators, more black representatives than they had white. And then, of course, federal troops pull out in a smoke-filled room, you know, behind closed-door deal to get their guy elected as president. We'll pull out the federal troops. And all this changes. And Jim Crow laws come into being. And you don't really see anyone who's black for decades Come back into these places, and we have certainly not hit the point where we've even approximated the amount of black representation in our nation, in our capital, than what happened right after the Civil War. And so again, it's like you just ask the question: it's like, there's more black people now than there was then, right? And so, what do we do with that? How do we wrestle with that? Or we could talk about redlining. There's so many different historical things that we can point out and say, look, the things that we're seeing in the present have all of these deep roots that go to the past, and we can't just say it's different now. We have to account for what's happened.
0: That's right. I want to have just two resources to suggest for your listeners. Yeah, one would be Guelzo's little book, Reconstruction. It's a little book. It's just jam-packed historian who's a Christian, evangelical Christian. I think his name is Alan Guelzo. Just that little book on Reconstruction will speak to all the stuff you were just talking about about Reconstruction and really the rise of Jim Crow and how all of that happened. And frankly, just... The terrorism of white supremacy i mean it's just re-enslavement it's awful it's awful stuff right it's awful i think it's sobering so okay that's a reconstruction period if we want to fast forward just to throw in an additional resource i think the warmth of other sons is actually really helpful on this mm-hmm. point and it's also through the lens of story which is what i tried to use in my book we can talk about that but it explains kind of why is the country shaped the way it is racially you know, and then a book I would suggest is by Nancy Denton and Douglas Massey called American Apartheid. Uh, it's called Segregation and the Making of the Ghetto, something like that. Because a lot of people, Patrick, want to go to kind of statistics and data to say, well, look at this, we'll look at this. I think that book, data wise, makes the strongest case on the racially invented making of the ghetto and how terrible it was and just the terrorism black middle-class families were experiencing when they moved into white neighborhoods and so just some resources on that that i want to suggest you said something else but i can't remember it so let's keep going (laughs) so we've
2: been talking about a lot of white americans saying i just want the conversation to end
0: yeah i think something you said i think is useful is a lot of people sometimes say that and what they're effectively doing is kind of be like if i just stop talking about it the problem will go away." And in no other sphere of life do we treat things like that. In your marriage, you don't just say... (laughs) It's so true. We're just not going to talk about this really thorny thing in our marriage and expect it to go away. And so invoking colorblindness in that sense does not erase the past, to put it differently. To use an example, I think a lot of people look and they're like, the Jim Crow laws are off the books. The colored only signs are gone. What do y'all keep complaining about? You can sit at the same counter I can, blah, blah, blah. And let's give credit where credit is due. A lot of colorblind advocates lament and hate racism as they understand it. They see color-consumed societies you know whites only over here coloreds only over here and they hate that they're like that's terrible and so i want to be clear about that so they say you know the laws are off the books and here's the analogy i would give is those laws are kind of like the lit match right and a lot of those matches arguably have been blown out they're gone but the house is still on fire and that's where the debate very well comes why is the house on fire? Is the house on fire? And I would look at some of these communities and say, that house is still on fire. That's what makes the effects of past systemic racism so insidious is that they can continue to operate without anyone intentionally operating them, and intentionally, you know, holding up the match to the house and lighting it on fire. It's just we lit it on fire, we walked away, and that thing's going to burn down on its own. That is
2: a really good metaphor, and it's making me think of another question I can imagine someone asking. I think for a lot of white people, we don't have intergenerational memory. I know that sounds a little bit right. weird, but like, I don't personally, like I don't feel that connected to my grandparents and their story or, or where they lived or what happened in their lives. Or maybe I've just got a really broken, messed up family. And that's the reason why, but like, it doesn't feel like a deep part of my story. And I can't look at any hurt in their past and say, oh, that has present ramifications in my life. And part of this comes, we did a podcast on this, gosh, in early January of 2022 from the myth of meritocracy, which is this notion that what everybody gets is kind of what they deserve based on their merits in life. So, so if you become wealthy, if you end up owning a house, if you end up getting a job in a high-powered elite organization, if you become a successful athlete, whatever it is, you've earned that by virtue of your own talent, skills, and hard work. And so, because I don't have any intergenerational memories, so I don't say, well, maybe I have what I have because of what happened to my grandparents <laughs> and this myth of meritocracy, which is, hey, everybody has what they get. It's really hard for me to understand your house-burning metaphor, right? Because I look at that and say, that stuff happened back in the 60s. I wasn't alive in the 60s. I don't see say racist things. I don't think I have racist thoughts. So you can talk about them, but this is now. So maybe respond to that person. who says, look, you're talking about a past generation. You're not talking about me.
0: Yeah. I would simply say that it goes back to holding two things in tension. Scripture is clear that we are responsible for our own actions, right? No one makes you sin. Scripture is clear about that. But it's also true that you're born into a family line and generations have. Impact on one another. And especially in the example you cited we're talking about generational wealth or anything like that. And then for the person, will like, well, what about that one kid who didn't have any generational wealth and he made it to the top because he's a really hard worker? Well, I'm like, well, praise God for that kid and maybe his gifts and talents, but not everyone is equally as gifted or as talented as that kid. So what about all of them? Do we just look aside and say, well, survival of the fittest? Because that sounds pretty atheistic, Darwinistic to me. And so I think we want to have a bit more compassion, mercy and i would argue even justice in that regard and recognize that people have different starting points in that regard so that's what i would say on some level to that person i think that's really good in a lot of ways i also think connects to what you said earlier which is
2: i just have to look at the facts on the ground you know look at the poor neighborhoods in my city look at my personal relationships look at the wedding photos and what i see let's talk about monocausal explanations does a meritocracy really explain that any better than just a, again, like the Ibram Kendi, everything's because of race. And you'd look at both and you say, oh no, like we do live in a fairly meritocratic society and that's a good thing, but it's not perfect. And there's a lot of people who fall off of the edges of those values that get harmed as a result. The exact same thing with race.
0: To bring that closer to even what we're talking about. Even in these shootings, I mean, here's where I think we should be really humble and shook as Christians is, you know, a common response will be, well, if they would just have followed the law, they'd still be alive today. And thank God that he didn't treat us that way. The whole reason we are Christians is because it's striking that people who understand themselves fundamentally to be lawbreakers— Saved by grace. So we understand if we're Christians, we're not in here on our own merits. We're in here (laughs) solely on Jesus's merit. That's how this whole thing works is I'm on his ticket, on his dime. I have no dimes to offer God. The only thing I'm offering God is my sin. And so I'm not saying, you know, individual agency doesn't matter. Obeying the laws don't matter. Proverbs is super clear. The rod is coming. Romans 13, super clear. The government doesn't bear the sword in vain. Got that. What's also true, though, is that what do you have that you have not received? And so we want to be, I think, a lot more humble in that regard to say, hey, we believe The authorities bear the right to punish, but we also believe those punishments should be just. In so many instances, that's what we're talking about.
2: again for a lot of white americans they're saying hey ready to end this conversation he said for a lot of black americans it's hey when are we going to start the real conversation and i think that comment might surprise some people who are white who would say well we've been talking about this for a long
0: time so what do you mean start the conversation in some sense uh, what i mean is not just having the conversation either on your terms or about the things you want to talk about but hey i'd actually like to talk about how we can help that community and you want to talk about whether or not that community actually needs to be helped those are two different conversations and i feel like we spend 90 percent of our time talking about whether or not that community actually wants to be helped and i'd like to actually flip that ratio and say okay you think it's one reason i think it's another reason can we help this community and i don't think we get to seeing whether that community needs to be helped without talking so i think talking is important but what i'm trying to tee up in the book is, hey, this is a starting point, not a finish line. And we need to be able to have the conversations. Again, you're throwing out kind of the hypothetical questions that would be put to me. But here I am just responding to these questions. Do you see? And so it's like, well, I'm actually trying to have a different conversation, but I'm happy to talk to you about whatever it is, CRT or colorblindness. And I think that's a part of the conversation. And no, I'm not thrilled to talk about CRT, so please don't ask, but you know what I mean. And so I just point to this conversation as an example. I don't mean that as an indictment on you, but as an example. I think you're totally right. And I'm actually very conscious of this even as we're talking, um,
2: (laughs) that white prerogatives, white questions tend to be the framing device. And I mean, actually using CRT, for a second, I'm not going to ask you about CRT because you told me not to. Yeah. Um, there was a study done by More In Common. Brother, it's
0: your show. You can ask me whatever
2: <laughs> you like. So. I respect people. There was a study done by a group called More In Common called the Hidden Tribe Study, and they were looking at political polarization in the U.S. And according to their study, the extreme wings of both partisan sides make up a very small minority of the country. It's about 6% on the far right and about 8% on the far left. So that's a very, very small portion. Most of the country is actually far more moderate and wants move past some of this stuff. But here's what's fascinating about those wings. They are largely upper middle class, white, educated people. In other words, the CRT debate, I'm going to ask you if you agree with me on this. I won't make you talk about CRT. What I have noticed is that this tends to be a intramural white debate. I'm not saying that there aren't black voices on each side because there for sure are black voices on each side, writing books, talking to each other. But it seems to me like it's a debate between two extreme white groups primarily. And I sometimes struggle to say, hey, actually, let's have a conversation about what most average white people think and what maybe
0: most average black people think because it doesn't seem to be happening on either side right now. Agreed. Agreed. And those things become fundamental distractions Mm. from the real issue at hand. Now, I want to be clear. I think there are real problems with CRT. I think there are real issues and legitimate things to talk about there. I also think... And we have other problems, and I'd argue, bigger problems that stem back to Reconstruction, that stem back to Jim Crow. And I'm like, man, you're so passionate about CRT, and yet all these other racial issues you don't want to talk about. One thing that came to mind, I want to make sure I say, it was going back to the person who was like, kind of the meritocracy conversation, and the person who doesn't feel that connected. There's a brother I know named Bobby Scott. He actually contributed to the book. And Bobby is keenly aware... That he was the first one, I think, to graduate maybe high school in his family, maybe college. And he's just keenly aware that he's the first one out of the kind of Jim Crow era to live. And so he talks about how his grandfather was a sharecropper, how his father had to work in this factory because of their ethnicity, that was monoculture, like they did not have other options. So I do think there is value in recognizing that, of saying where these people had to be because of their ethnicity. Yeah, it created very and vast different kinds of opportunities and experiences that I think we want to recognize as legitimate and worthy of lament and sorrow in the body of Christ.
2: But what I hear you saying over and over again is that There's groups of people who maybe, again, want to make everything about race, groups of people who want to say race has nothing to do with this. And what I hear you saying is, whoa, 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 race isn't the only thing, but it is a significant thing. And you cannot pull it out of the story because the minute you do, you pull the whole story out of shape. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a good summary. So I would love to shift the conversation more now towards What's the conversation that you think needs to happen? Most of our audience is probably largely white. So I guess we could have that conversation. That would be interesting. You know, it's like, let's look at the wedding photo and talk about that. Let's look at our podcast audience and talk about that. Now, I don't know that for certain because I don't have demographic details. I'm just making a guess that it's probably mostly white people listening to two white guys who co-host a podcast. (laughs) It's just a a little gander on
0: my part. (laughs) So, I think this is where people would get tripped up because they now all of a sudden feel bad for listening to this podcast. I don't think they need to feel bad. I don't think that's wrong. I just think it's interesting and maybe there's something behind that. Oh, I totally agree. And I don't feel right. bad. I know I you. Yeah. But I'm just saying for, for the dear sake of your listener who's <laughs> like, man, I used to like this show and now I feel like I'm not allowed to listen to it. I'm like, well, man, I don't think predominantly white churches are necessarily wrong or predominantly black churches or predominantly Korean churches. I think there are reasons behind these things, though. Yeah, And we should actually think about them and not just uncritically look at them. Yeah, absolutely. I would love for you to shift the conversation then. And let's talk
2: about what do you think is the real conversation? What are the topics that you wish
0: more white podcast hosts or more white people in churches were asking moving forward? Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate you passing me the microphone in that sense. Well, here's the overarching question. Given that race has been one of the greatest pitfalls, for American evangelicals. How then shall we live? How can we make this right? Now, in saying that... I'm not saying that it's all white people's fault. I'm not saying they're the ones who did it. And that's where the conversation gets derailed quickly.
2: Okay, from this point forward, no caveats. All right, all right, all right. If you read this book and you walk away thinking that this isn't a guy who's really fully tried to be gracious and understand a white perspective and a black perspective and even non-white, non-black perspectives, you took your crazy pills this morning. (laughs) You don't have to give any more caveats, right? Like, I, I think sometimes you're right. Like, that's what derails it is. We start saying, well, and I'm not saying this, and I'm not saying that. And I feel the same way, actually, a lot of times. Yeah. Like, well, hold on, I'm, I'm not, not saying I'm not saying
0: that. Okay, recognizing that we live in a fallen world where the reality of a fallen world is not everything can be fixed. It can't be. But what can we do? I'm a Christian. I want to do good works. What can we do positively? I don't want to have the conversation anymore about negatively how can i not be a racist i want to positively actually pursue i preached psalm 67 recently we want to be a blessing to the nations yes and amen i hope we also luke 10 want to be a blessing to our neighbors and recognizing that we often don't nail our neighbors we're often segregated at least de facto from our neighbors What can we do for the good of these black and brown churches? So something I'm praying in my pastoral prayer recently at our church is, Lord, how can you help our church, which is predominantly white, help churches and be helped by churches who Birmingham history says we should have nothing to do with? Right now, the narrative the world can get is all these evangelicals think CRT is being crammed down their kids' throats. I would love the narrative to be, Man, look at these evangelicals. They just bend over backward to help black and brown communities. They understand, hey, you know, we didn't put the cross, the burning cross in that church's yard, but maybe one of our grandfathers did, and we owe y'all on that. There's just some interesting passages that I feel like I've been reading where it's like, man, cats come, and they're like, yo, y'all owe us for this just at the end of second samuel it was just something i was reading today and and they're hard and harrowing
2: <laughs> are you talking about the passage where people that that saul
0: killed or i, I, I yes, can't remember the, yes, yes and okay. he's like i'm gonna let my go but yes. like the rest of y'all and they're coming they're like we don't want money we want them and it's a hard passage right but it's in scripture for a reason i think that's why i just fear even talking about it because someone's gonna pin me to the wall on this old covenant passage well hold on that is crazy You can go to
2: Daniel's prayer where he's confessing the sins of his ancestors. You can go to Ezra and Nehemiah who both do the exact same thing, but they don't say that my granddaddy did this. It is, I did this, right? Like that is how close they are to the ancestral sins of their past. We could go to Exodus where God says, you know, his love is for endless generations, but that sins are passed down to four generations. Like we go to all these passages that make this exact same point again and again and again, that sin is systemic and it is intergenerational. And it does have this way of polluting and corrupting systems and I love what you're saying which is how do we almost change the narrative we had Tim Mackey on here in fact I think that episode will come out after this one but he was talking about in the book of Ephesians demonic power structures of the world the way
0: that the world is structured systematically the church's job is to show forth a different structure <laughs> that's right and I fear that the church is not showing forth a different structure but we're just showing a kind of baptized worldliness with all our intramural debates and arguments and that's where I'm just like Luke 10. I would like to talk about how we can help and bless our neighbors in that regard while recognizing there are still very legitimate conversations to have. And I'd like to talk about some of my hopes, fears, and dreams. I'd like to be able to state those things clearly without having to make 15 caveats. I'd like to hear some of your hopes, fears, and dreams. And I think that's one way we can enter the conversation is someone is going to have to come to the conversation vulnerably and humbly and be like, this is what I think, or this is my honest question. But if we're only... In it to win some argument it gets ugly real fast and people are just like yeah I'm done with you and that's what we see so often I think you're laying down a beautiful vision and it actually is one of my prayers that God
2: would challenge predominantly white churches to find black or multi-ethnic or other ethnic churches inside of their communities to love, to partner with, and like you said, not just a one-way kind of paternalistic, here, we give you the money and we help you out, but to build relationships and realizing that maybe in the immediate future, it doesn't look like those church bodies are going to (laughs) merge with one another and become one church body, but who knows what that produces, you know, two, three, four generations down the line. And I think this is especially important Because we have to acknowledge the fact that the vast majority of wealth in the U.S. is inside of white pockets. And this is a conversation I get into with my friends who are black pastors consistently, which is, look, I've got a decent sized congregation here and we're having a difficult time self-sustaining simply because of the color of the skin of the people in my church. So I've got to be bivocational I get to do what you do where you have multiple pastors on staff and they all get to work full-time in ministry. That's not an option for me. And again, that's a call for me to say, well, maybe what that means for us as a church is that we have to be communitarian, not communist, communitarian with our resources. We have to be willing to give them away to other communities. And it kind of goes back to that, hey, you owe me this. Like people might say, well, why does it start with the white church? Well, If you know the history of churches, white churches were the ones who kicked black Christians out. They were the ones who segregated. There would
0: be no black church without racism in white churches. Bingo. And that's what's so lamentable is to say, okay, if this is our history, what can we do in the undoing of this? Yes, That's going to take a long time. And that's where I fear that people get so discouraged in the conversation. And I'm like, well, you're not going to change, you know, 400 years of history overnight. And it's really not about even, I would say, you changing it per se, as it is your faithfulness in this. I'm not looking for just, you know, this check in my bank account. I'm looking for all of us to pursue faithfulness in this regard. But one of the main problems is that, my dear white brother and sister, you get so defensive and the conversation just becomes about how you're not a racist that we don't even get there. And that's where I'm like, if we can have some better conversations, we might have some better faithfulness in pursuing justice and mercy and love, which all of us Christians agree we want to pursue that might be the best call to action for someone to go read your book because your book is
2: full of people who are having <laughs> those exact conversations. exactly. And it is so real. And now it totally makes sense because as you're saying, hey, this is coming from my story. It's coming from my friend's stories. I mean, I saw myself in it over and over and the conversations I've had mm. in my life in it over and over and over again. And I thought that's why this is a gift is because in a sense, it's allowing people to jumpstart those conversations that are really scary. You know, for people who have not had the chance to sit across the table of someone of a different skill. Skin color and talk through these issues who might be terrified to do that, or who mm. might be, you know, too angry to. I mean, there's a bajillion different reasons why. I think your book is a great starting place because it gives you a head start on the conversation and starts getting you going down that direction. I guess that might be my next question is, you know, we probably do have a lot of white listeners to this podcast who are saying, Gosh, I care about this. I want to do something. I don't know what to do. I don't know. Maybe even how to build a relationship with somewhat of a different skin color on the basis of faith. Like, I have
0: no idea what I'm doing. What do I do next? Where would you have me start? So even though that was the original idea for the book, I do have a chapter on that in which I provide 26 suggestions, but okay, fine, half of them are (laughs) prayer. Uh, So it's really 13 suggestions, right? But I do encourage people to start with prayer, you know, and people kind of roll their eyes. And I think that's the exact problem. That kind of self-reliance that is utterly a stench in the nostrils of God. It's self-reliance of what got us into this mess. If you actually study and read and the things you were talking about, we need divine help to move these mountains. And that's exactly what Jesus told us to do. You want this mountain to be moved? Ask me in my name and you'll move it. And so pray about it. Beyond that, I do think, you know, just for your listeners, I think reading and studying is really helpful because you'll actually ask better questions to your minority friends, and you'll actually get a better idea of what kind of context I'm walking in. So read about the history of your city, the history of your church, whatever you can be doing. Reading, listening, praying is super important. Next, I would say get locally involved. I find the people who are locally involved aren't having this kind of existential, like, what can I be doing? What can I be doing? But give some of your time to that crisis pregnancy center. Give some of your time to mentoring These inner city kids, it's like it's not everything, but it's not nothing. And so much of life is done in these mundane moments that the Lord seems to use in some really impactful ways. Next put your money where your mouth is, you know, financially support some of these organizations, some of these churches. It was like, hey, I don't know what I can do, but I can bless this church. I can bless this community. So, man, those are at least a few steps. I can look in this chapter for more. But, (laughs) man, I would say pray about it and keep praying about it. Time has a way of testing the genuineness of our desires. And that's why we have the parable of Luke 18, which is a parable about justice, where Jesus says, I am telling you this so that you might not lose heart and you might keep praying. So keep praying about it. And there are real other things to be done. And I talk about specifically when these tragedies happen. And man, we're having this conversation. Buffalo happened two weeks ago. It's just like, these aren't going away. So we really do need to be equipped in sense of like, okay, when this happens, what do I do? And so I walk through some other steps with that in the book as well. Absolutely. And I agree with you about prayer.
2: I think as Americans, we are so prone to technocratic solutions where it's like, hey, here's a problem. So what's the method? What's the tool? What's the system? What's the policy that I can put into place to fix the problem, right? And that's a technological solution. I'm not saying it uses technology always, but that's what it is. Right. And you're drawing out a good point, which is saying the church is not technocratic. It doesn't neglect practical matters. And yet, fundamentally, we see God as the fuel, the power, the energy behind actual transformation. And if you believe that you're going to be less fixated on some of those things and more fixated on prayer, on the power
0: of God to transform hearts and minds in communities and civilizations. I think that's right. I mean, Americans are used to fixing things. We just think, like, there's an app for that. And that's why I think it is important to have as a fundamental starting point, not everything in a fallen world could be fixed. And there's just a lot to lament and a lot to grieve. You want to do something, be humble. That's what you can do. You can be humble out there. You can stop being so defensive. You can pray for those people around your Thanksgiving table who drive you crazy. You know, those are real things you can do. And just even that awareness is helpful. And being okay, be like, okay, I can't fix the world, but I can faithfully trust the one who will and follow him. And Luke 10, I mean, this dude is going along his way. So just look out for those kind of opportunities, I think is really important. And last thing I would say, stop binding people's consciences to do the exact same thing you're doing. So, so many people want to say, hey, if you're going to be justice minded like me, you need to do X and Y. Well, racism is a monster with many heads, and it's going to take a lot of faithful responses to get after it. It's not monocausal, right? And so, what does justice and mercy look like for the lawyer? And what does it look like for the homemaker? And what does it look like for the school teacher? Well, there are gonna be different answers on that. And that might mean that in our individual lives, we have lots of different callings, but we can't just say our church, therefore, must do X and Y. So it's tough. But we wanna think about okay, my specific calling as a pastor, when Buffalo happens, what do I do? How do I pursue faithfulness, mercy, justice, love? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And that humility really cuts
2: through every side of this conversation, Mm -hmm, because as a pastor, I have faced people who say, good gosh, I want this conversation to end. And it's, hey, I think you need to be humble and listen to the perspectives and voices of other people and realize that maybe where you stand is because of where you sit, you know? Yeah. And on the other side, talking to very, very self-righteous Christians who are white, who think that they've realized the truth, they know the truth and they know all the answers. And if you aren't willing to go as far as they go on this issue or come to the conclusions that they come to, then you're in some sort of mortal sin and rebellion against God. And it's like, well... hold on, you got to be humble. (laughs) I mean, you've drawn a lot of conclusions here. So that's what I like about you saying be humble because it speaks to both sides of the conversation for a lot of white listeners in particular, who, again, I mean, that's our audience. And it speaks to me that
0: I need more humility. Amen. Here is one thing that will fundamentally change your conversations. Without this one thing, you can have all the racial knowledge in the world and still be a noisy gong. What is it? Humility. Give me the humble cat over the racial know-it-all any day on either side and humility it's like a christian superpower i mean it's just like we live in a world of pride and so it's just like when you embody that and have that you really can i mean it's just amazing patrick how quickly pride can end a conversation and how powerfully humility can start one that's a wonderful way to end this conversation. <laughs> I mean, have you ever just said something to your wife and you're like, wow, I was proud and dumb and that conversation <laughs> just blew up. Even if I was right, right? <laughs> and it's so private, like, and I probably was right, but... It's just That's like, 90% of my conversations, not
2: just with my wife, but with everyone. It's like, gosh, if I just walked back, and put a little bit of humility in there. You're just like, I am watching this tank right now. right, right Live action. <laughs> and it's all because of me. Well, thanks again so much for being on the show. I'd love it if you'd pray for... For our listeners.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's pray. Father, we need help. We need help. Your word says that if we lack wisdom, we can ask for it, and you're happy to give it. So we're here asking for wisdom, for better conversations, that we might be more faithful disciples in a country that's been really affected, in churches that have been really affected by issues of race and racism. Father, would you help us to be a more faithful people? that embody the truths of John 13, 35 in a way that makes the world know that Jesus is real. Lord, we would like for the world to think that Jesus is real, that you really did send him, that your spirit really does empower us to live different lives and show a unity that displays the power of your gospel. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in the gospel and making one new man. Father, we confess that we have not maintained that unity perfectly. We have not walked in humility, been eager to maintain unity. We've not shown kind and compassionate hearts, Lord. We need your forgiveness and we need your help. Father, for the person who still feels paralyzed after listening to this, Lord, I pray that you'd minister to them. For the person who had righteous anger and it has quickly become self-righteous anger, Lord, I pray that you'd convict them. And for all your people, Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we might more faithfully pursue that which you call us to in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for being on the show. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me, man.
1: Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truth over tribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.